kicking well, off. Well, first there. of all, this is Ali Mellon. Ali, you, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. You are a senior researcher with Forrester? Senior analyst. Senior analyst. See, I knew I was going to get it wrong right up front, but we had the distinct pleasure of working together years ago. And um, I have to say, uh, your work was phenomenal. Um, you certainly uh, helped with everything I did that looked good was probably your your hand helping make it look good or better or whatever <laughs> and your own and your own work that you put out there was phenomenal and first class all the way um it was backed by experience and uh frankly by uh, a phenomenal way of looking at things and so it's been great to see you then go on and be mm -hmm. an analyst not a researcher but be an analyst who does great research and so on so with that i'll hand it over to you to fix anything i've said and to add to it Thank you so much. No, it's it's great to be here. Um, as you mentioned, Ali Mellon, senior analyst at Forrester. I cover security operations, so people process technology in the SOC. That includes EDR, XDR, SIM, SOAR, security analytics, ransomware, MITRE attack, AI and machine learning and security tools, and um, nation state threats. So very small amount of stuff. <laughs> it's teeny, teeny, tiny. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's a huge area, but it, it's, I'm going to try to, I'm not trying to mansplain it, but I'm trying to characterize it as like, you're looking at all of the attack surface, the people, the players, the tools, and then what do we do about it with all the people and the players and the tools and the processes? That full spectrum is enormous. Yeah, um, you know, it, a lot of it is very focused around the detection and response aspects. So I'm very lucky I don't have to do any of the boring stuff on the protect and identify side of things. But um, it's definitely a lot to cover. And it's one of the reasons why I love it so much is because it gives me the opportunity to think about this from not just the tools perspective, which is how we classically think of analyst firms yeah. looking at the market, but also from a people and process perspective, thinking about how should we structure the SOC? What should the SOC look like in the future? As we think about detection engineering, what does that mean? What does that look like? And so it gives me a good, um, a good broad way of looking at things, but also I can get down into very specific elements of each of those parts. So I, I read everything that you write. When I have a license, I should say, for those at Forrester, when I have a license, <laughs> I read everything you publish and everything you put out publicly. But my sense is that in the market, we lionize products largely because that's where the marketing dollars are. Yeah. In other words, there are whole marketing departments that are there to say, buy my EDR or buy my new buzzword XDR or whatever that is. But there aren't as much for the, here's how you organize a SOC unless it's consulting dollars, or here's how you make a process more efficient. So it, it's because the voices in the market are typically, unless it's someone like you, it's, it is the, that's what the billboards say. That's what the interstitial ads when you go out on the web say. And so who, you know, if you're, if you're uh, an architect or if you're a CISO or if you're a CTO, then you're thinking in terms of products because that's what the broadcasting is. Um, is that fair well, or human, is that how you see it? Humans like things. We like things. It's not a security. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not a security ailment or a technology industry ailment. Car people are the same way. Farmers are the same way. They buy new tractors, new plotters, new planters. Mm. Like, it's not. But, we but like they also they also humans. go to agricultural school and they also study crop cycles and they're also trying to improve yeah, their right, processes. Right. right. 
Oh yeah, maybe I missed the point you're trying to so, make. So what I'm trying to say is that I think it's really cool, Ali, that you you define your space and what you cover, not just in terms of the products. Right, yes. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it's something that's very important to me um, in particular because I advise the Fortune 500, right? So admittedly, a lot of the value, the immediate value is, hey, let's get this analyst a room and talk about the products and talk about which product will best meet our needs, 100%. But there's also an element of this that's very important where they're looking for validation on the people in process side quite a bit. Is this the right way to organize our SOC? Is this the right way to retain talent? How should we be thinking about the the elements of the SOC, like from a detection and response process portion? How do we think about automation in the SOC? All of those pieces. And those play into the technology quite a bit. So it, it does end up being very important to have both because that's where the value add is so much higher than if I was just saying like, oh, use that technology or that technology. Yeah, it's, a, you- it's not just um, what's what's the best. It's, it's what fits best. Um, yeah. Well. 100%. Knowing about their existing processes and where they're going and helping them to kind of mold that helps me so much more with the technology side too. So it's very much so give and take. Now, Jacob, you, you started by saying you had questions and areas to dive into. And I, I, sure. think, I, I think I know Ali quite well and I, I have questions, but rather than me going to minutia, why don't we, we start with something you'd like to know? Yeah, well, I'll start by conjecture and then Ali can correct. And we yeah, we're all guessing, so so please Perfect. forgive us. <laughs> right. Educated. So guesses. from from my perspective, I think you have one of the most difficult jobs in the industry. Your job is to have an opinion, like that, at the end of the day, right? And people in technology are particular about their opinions, in general, <laughs> which puts you at the intersection of a bunch of people who want to fight over what right is people want a black or white this is right this is the best thing this is not the best thing um so i guess my question is do you want to agree of that conjecture that it is one of the most difficult jobs and how do you how do you deal with that how do you manage it from an analyst perspective both professionally and i guess personally too like as i assume you go home some days at the end of the day and you're like that was a terrible day because so and so was (laughs) not nice about something i wrote or not nice about something i said in a meeting um, and I imagine if, please tell me if I'm wrong, but I imagine as a woman in the industry, that can be double at times too. And maybe you're an exception and that has never happened to you, but I would love to hear if you think that plays into that as well. So one, does it happen to analysts Two, Do you find that it's more challenging as a woman in the industry as well? Jacob, you got me right in the heart. <laughs> so, um, a couple of things. First off, uh, do I think it's the hardest, one of the hardest jobs in the industry? No, actually, I think that totally honestly security analyst as not me analyst but sock analyst is the hardest job in the industry i mean we used right, to work no with voice yeah no voice just constant work very mm. difficult like i have done so many interviews with security analysts where they're like this is not a nine to five job like you have to spend more and obviously it's a shift-based job but the you get the overarching meaning uh, but even more so than that they're working outside their normal hours. And then on top of that, they're also working on the skills they need to get to the next level. So it's just, it's so much work. And um, we used to work with Israel Barak, who's a great guy. Oh yeah, he's awesome. Isn't yeah. He? Fantastic. Um, shout, out, we, shout out to Israel and we got to have him on sometime, but yes, please continue. Yeah. yeah. And he would say that the security analyst role was the worst job in the world. And I believe him. He was only half joking, but it is, um, 
definitely when I think about it, like the practitioner side, especially at an in, like an enterprise, any of those roles are much worse than what I have to deal with. So I'll start with that. All that said, sometimes this job does suck, <laughs> to be it's honest. A, it's, a, it's a controversial job. Like it being a, a SOC analyst job. is not controversial. Right. I, I think is what I was trying to get to. Yeah. Yes, I completely agree. It, it You get a lot of difficult personalities sometimes. Um, and in particular, you're totally right. Like everything that I do has to be backed by research. And a lot of it, one of the benefits of the job is that it is all about the conversations that I have with people who disagree with me. Um, I can't go into a room with one of these CISOs that I advise and say something that isn't backed by research, because if I do, they will call me out on it. They want to know the truth. They want to know the reality. And if I am trying to hide behind something that isn't true, they're going to figure it out pretty quickly. They probably call you out on the research back. Oh, yeah. 100%. I've gotten emails. We have deep conversations. It's one of the the simultaneously most stressful parts of the job and best parts of the job. Um, In addition to that, there's obviously a lot of the vendor interaction, particularly around waves and some of the evaluative research, which can get uh, uncomfortable. Contentious. Contentious unprofessional, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a variety of things. But I'm very lucky in that Forrester is incredibly supportive. And one of the things that George Colony, our CEO says is, you only have to be right 70% of the time. (laughs) You've got some leeway, 70 to 80. You've got some leeway to be wrong, but just make sure that you're right the vast majority of the time because they want us to stretch. They want us to push ourselves and the industry and the ideas of the industry while still making sure that we're maintaining our credibility. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. Um, George has George has been at this for a long time, and 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 it is impossible, I think, to be taking something like listening to human beings and their pain and interpreting it and summarizing it, it when there's a moving target ever and get a hundred percent. I mean, you may be aiming for it, right? But you're never gonna hit the target every time. Humans and even machines, uh, we're starting yeah. to find out, don't do that, right? So. That may sound strange to folks, but I totally relate to that. Did yeah. that answer it for you, Jacob? Did that? Well, I just realized yeah. that I missed the second half of the question. Which was ah, the okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, and the answer to the part about being a woman in this industry is, um, and thank you for bringing it up, is that no woman is an exception to this stuff. Um, Imagine not. Yeah, it's um, it's very interesting and like. I can kind of take a step back from it and just observe it to see how some of my male colleagues and some of my older colleagues are treated in a way that is very different than the way that I'm treated. Uh, It's baffling to them. Actually, I'm very lucky to have a lot of great allies at Forrester, and we actually have an incredibly diverse team. Actually, two of the people on the team, both women, one myself, one Sandy Carielli, both worked for Sam at some point, which is a very Sandy, fun Sandy's a mon- we got to have her on too. She's, <laughs> she's, she's, she's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm lucky to have a good support system, but it gets very personal, unfortunately, especially with the women in the industry, um, with attacking the women in the industry. And so I am always here to talk to other women who are struggling with that and to support them through it because I think that's all we can do um, besides continuing forward and continuing to to do the work that we do. Sam, I don't know what you want to share, but I know that you've had multiple colleagues recently that were directly impacted by what we would consider 
sexism, and I'll leave it just very. I leave it uh, high yeah. level because I think I it's, mean, it's personal uh, stories that don't shouldn't be on a public it, podcast. But mm. I think it's worth commenting that you know of people that this has directly impacted in their careers. Yeah, uh, I want to be really careful not to hurt or do any damage to them ever. Right, exactly. Uh, and a number of us yeah, in the community, level. male and female, have sought to be allies and support them. But I've seen excuses to fire them, fire them. And I've seen excuses to sabotage their lives that we find unacceptable. Um, if, if, so, so look, as a, as a, as a man and as somebody in, first of all, as somebody in cyber, one of the reasons I'm in it, I think is partly to do with a, a deep passion for justice. And I don't want to have gotten here or look back and be like, look, I'm here because I had an advantage, right? Or I'm playing life on an easy setting. Like, that's not, you know, that's not cool. Like, I just don't, I don't tend to, or I'm not aware of seeing, seeing life through, um, through the, through a lens that has a bias, but I think to some degree it's inescapable. And I think, Ali, I hope, I hope you saw and felt this. I hope Sandy did too, that I tried to, um, I tried to make, especially on every issue, not just women's issues, that you were in charge and you were in the center. I tried to, but the allyship is important as opposed to, and for, please forgive the expression, white knighting it. Like I'm not charging in to defend and look at me and I'm virtue signaling or whatever the term is. It's really hard to do, especially when you see somebody suffering because you're like, do I stand up here? And then the, then the right. spotlight's on me. It or let be. them have their fight. Or how do you make sure they have a fight when they shouldn't have to damn well fight? And how do you give them enough props so that they stand up when they shouldn't be in that place in the first place? And I, I, I might be rambling a bit here, but but Jacob, and I've shared with Jacob that there's, there's, there's a few women that uh, have contacted me recently because they've had such unfairness. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, 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 and we, we sort of score, we do keep score of who's doing this, by the way, in the community. And for those who are listening, we pay attention to you and what you're doing and, and and we talk amongst each other. It's not a conspiracy. It's like we notice when you do this, just realize that we all have signal groups and Slack servers and when you fire someone and say you don't want the position anymore and then a year later it reappears with a man in it, we get it and we don't want that position. So anyway, I hope that's not too much because it's such a sensitive area, but I want to hear, Ali, I want to hear what did or didn't resonate with you yeah. uh, with that and what your yeah. perspective is. And I'll just say that both of you have been allies at different times. So thank you for that. Um, And also like Sandy and I talk about this frequently, Sam, you were so pivotal at very, very important moments in both our careers, um, helping us get to that next level. I mean, one of the most difficult things coming into this is even when I came back to the security industry after taking a little bit of a break, I, um, still struggled to feel like I was accepted or was confident enough, was an expert enough. And you were one of the first people to tell me that I was an expert in the space. And it changed things for me in a really meaningful way and helped not only keep me in the space, but also make me feel more accepted, make me feel like I had a place here. So I can't thank you enough for that. Um, By the way, I heard the criticism. I heard the criticism and I was like, excuse me, but fuck that. So, yeah. Thank you. But please continue. Yeah. So, so you came back into the space and, um, and, and you and Sandy have both experienced this. Um, yeah. 
And we actually did some research um, pretty recently within the last year on uh, addressing gender bias in security. And first off, that research was horrifying (laughs) because you would not believe the number of people who unfortunately went from being big advocates for women entering the space to saying, go into any other part of tech but cybersecurity. And that to me was really fascinating because we think of it as a tech problem, but in reality, there's a much deeper problem within the cybersecurity field. So it's bad everywhere, but worse here. Exactly, exactly. But it was also very heartwarming because there were a number of allies and people in the space who really put a lot of work into making sure that women in the space have the best situation possible and feel included and feel like they're part of something. And so it was um, definitely uh, emotional research, but, but very worthwhile and very interesting to see the things that we need to do to keep moving forward and keep having a positive impact on the space. I know it's emotional to ask these questions, but you also mentioned age. Um, and I'll just share that look, when, when I was in California, uh, in Silicon Valley, I was uh, in my late 20s and I was considered old. And then I moved to the East Coast and I was in my 30s and considered young and was fighting against that because back then the mean age, I think, was probably in their 50s in the East Coast. Um, but what's your experience been and what's your research been in and around age? Yeah, the so my experience has been... Um, challenging at times and really great at others, you know, going into a role as an analyst at Forrester um, in my late twenties was daunting because most of my colleagues are in their thirties or forties. But it was also very unique because it gave me a very unique point of view on the industry and everybody was very supportive. We have a very jokey culture within the Forrester security and risk team. So they, we all made edgy or just jokey. Is it, is it like (laughs) edgy is definitely part of it. If you've seen us on Twitter, Um, it's not, it's not not necessarily politically correct, but it is, it is. Yeah. Okay. So it's, but it's, uh, yes, but it's, um, a community and it's never mean or never hurtful or anything like that. Um, so even when vendors or others would try to use it to, belittle the things that I was doing, the team was very supportive. And that's really all that I could ask for in that situation, unfortunately. With our research, it highlighted a lot of things that I think even for women who are younger in this field may get missed because what we heard a lot of was from that male ally perspective and from what they hear from other men that never gets said to women. Mm. Um, An example of this being that women are either at an age where they're, for lack of a more appropriate term, dateable, or they're a crone. And those are the two options for the women that are in the field. Things like that, which are um, just awful and just awful to hear. And you know underneath that that's what's being said, but as a woman, you don't necessarily, thankfully, hear it very often. So trying to find people who don't think of women in those two categories that's really where I find the best people in the industry are and where I like to spend most of my time. <laughs> if I can. So, uh, it's funny. I, uh, you, I think you probably know Anne-Marie Zellmoyer, right? Yeah, She's a CISO in the space. She wrote a paper about how women may actually be better at risk management than men. She was talking about how the, only 25% of, of uh, CISOs are women and yet they may be better at risk management. And there was, I will just say this, there was a misogynist comment in response uh, 
it's really hard to find a, anything else but that interpretation, and, and I took exception to it and delight, actually, in providing academic responses and research to the contrary. Um, and it's amazing to me that there is actually research, like during the financial crisis, that banks managed by women lost less money and were met better managed through risk. And the same is true uh, during things like crises, like earthquakes. And when women have more empowerment in a country, risk management tends to be done better uh, generally across the board. And yet here we are, we see ourselves as risk managers and we're not getting that. Um, by the way, uh, I just want to point out uh, when you and I worked together, you had already been a developer for a long time. And I would like to ask, first of all, let's switch gears and I'll let Jacob ask more of his questions. Uh, how did you decide engineering? Because I have this theory that, that, you're, that first of all, you're a great writer. Thank and you. secondly, um, you are a programmer um, by training originally. Thirdly, by the way, you speak well. So that's like a triple threat, like, well done. <laughs> but, but, but how did you decide, first of all, to go into engineering and or be and, and write about it too at some point? And then why cyber? How did that decision happen? I know yeah. you came back to it. You talked about how you came back to it and that that was a difficult decision. So maybe those three transitions, engineering, cyber, and then return to cyber. What, why was it compelling to do so? Is that a Star Wars trilogy? Yeah. Return of the alley. Like, that was your first. That's the name of the book. <laughs> That's it. That's the name of that's the name of the, the podcast. That was your right first there. job in any technical industry or computer industry was developer. So you went and learned, or did you just do something else, like started IT, and then went to developer? Or yeah, so it's a it's a great question. What so first the journey. Yeah. yeah, I was not a good writer, and I was not a good speaker um, when I was in my college years or younger. I was actually pretty convinced that I did not need those skills, which is very funny now. <laughs> um, but even in high school, I was writing code and was very lucky that there were a group of us friends who would do independent studies just so that we could learn Java and things like that. Um, I was also grew up in a very small town in the middle of New Hampshire. And so a lot Wait, of which my town? friends- uh, oh, you got, you got Jacob's interest. He's from New Hampshire. So that's Oh, it. yeah. This happens on every podcast. Yeah. Granite State talk. Here we go. Yeah. All right. Wait. By Sunapee in New London. I was in Ossipy. Oh, okay. Very funny. For, for yeah. those of so people we were... who aren't from New Hampshire, uh, nobody cares. No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm just teasing you guys. I live uh, right in New Hampshire. See, so New Hampshire is so small that no matter what you interacted with, probably our high schools played each other in sports. Oh, Because we're sure. around the same age, which means our teams were probably on each other's fields. Like we, we were near each other probably physically at one point, totally. but had never interacted and didn't even know we were both from New Hampshire until now. It's funny. That, that, it's so funny. Um, yeah, definitely yeah. did. Cause I um, played tennis all four years. So I was probably, <laughs> if you had tennis. Yeah I, was, yeah, I was playing soccer. I don't know if we had tennis. Anyway, sorry for everyone. That's okay, back, back to Ellie though. So, yeah. so yeah. You, were, you were learning, you so see, you had a group of friends and you were picking up basic scripting and programming skills, I think. Yes. Yeah. And my dad has a degree in computer science. And so I was spending quite a bit of time learning from him as well um, before going off to college where I was convinced I was going to do computer science. And uh, I started it, I got maybe like a year and a half in. And it's interesting at Boston University, which is where I went to school, there are two different types of computer science. Basically, there's the computer science department, which is in the arts and sciences. And then there's computer engineering department, which is in the engineering department. And the computer science 
version was very theoretical. And I loved that because I love math, but it was way more theoretical and math focused than I wanted for what I expected my career to be. I wasn't thinking like, hey, I want to be a professor or something like that. I wanted to be hands-on. So I switched to the computer engineering department and spent the rest of my, my career there. Um, I, I was also just, a lot of that was driven by just being very engineering focused from the beginning. My dad ran, ran an engineering company. Um, I worked at MIT doing uh, liquid malt battery research. So very hands-on, very tactical, not very theoretical. And um, once I finished that degree, actually one of the last classes that I took was the only cybersecurity course <laughs> at VU at the time. And it was incredibly hands-on. I had a professor, Professor Ari Trachtenberg, who was very much so of the belief that the only way to do things is to actually do them. And so we hacked a server for our midterm. Um, we had to defend a server and hack a server at the same time for our final. So it was a very, very fun uh, class. And for our midterm project, we actually had to do either some novel research or some research that um, was a duplicate of what someone else had done. And Professor Trachtenberg was a big fan of Black Hat. That'll matter later in the story. <laughs> so uh, along with a couple of my friends, we hacked the square reader and we turned it into a credit card skimmer. And my professor was so excited about this. He was like, you should submit this to Black Hat. Black Hat USA, the call for submission was what shows up. Mm -hmm. So we did. We wrote a paper, all of that, and it got accepted. And so my first real experience with the security industry was flying out to Vegas and speaking about it, getting on CNN and CNBC and all of that. And I just fell in love with the space immediately. I was like, this is the coolest thing. I love mm. all the tinkerers. I love all of the different perspectives, the pushing the envelope. Everybody was incredibly nice, actually. I had a great first conference experience, especially for cybersecurity, given our earlier conversation. And um, so from then on, I was thinking about it. And at the time, just as you mentioned, Sam, I was more focused on development, running an engineering consultancy out of college, um, working with a lot of startups out of MIT on, on different aspects of their engineering processes. Uh, but I always wanted to get back into security. And so I was finally able to do that at the company where I met you both. And I actually can't believe you were a bad writer because <laughs> we wrote we we wrote so much together. Yeah. Your writing was always you had a you had rhetoric down. You knew how to say things with less words. You had to, you had to use better mm -hmm. words. You had grammar down. You had structure. Your you know it was it was tight writing. I mean it was. So that didn't come out of nowhere. Where did that come from? And if you don't know, that's okay. But it, there must be something. <laughs> It's that? a good question because also in college, I actually, to avoid taking a writing class, I took a history of war class because I was like, history I of don't war. want to take writing. Yeah. <laughs> Which so that's awesome. why all of my analogies about like Sun Tzu and stuff and like you were oh, all yeah. like I'm there with you. Yeah. All about it. <laughs> I'm a big war buff. Um, but I think that a lot of it just came from working with my mom quite a bit because she's an artist and a writer. And so learning from her for, for the majority, I was very lucky to have both kinds of sides of the coin. My mom, very creative, my dad, very engineering and technical focused. Um, so a lot of it came from that. And then just trial and error. I mean, it's one of these things where I think in the internet age, you can do anything you set your mind to because you have access to everything. And uh, a lot of it was just, all right, what do I need to know about how to write this sentence or how to do this in a way that's more impactful? I remember the first time I sent you a paper and it came back with meaningful write-up and markup and commentary and was better. 
I was like, hmm. Not to be not to be arrogant. Like when I when I work on something really hard, when someone gives it back, I value that. Because so often nothing it's like is, oh, I got nothing to say, you know. Nothing or, is more annoying than working on something having no feedback. Like, yeah, I, I, I like fix nitpick. You're everything. hungry for it, you, right? Yeah. Like, it's tell necessary. Me, tell me I'm wrong. Totally. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm glad. All right, Jacob. I cut you off with just your first question. You said you had a few. Um, I, I I don't know. I, I, I'm lost now. We we're just into the conversation train. <laughs> well, what we could do yeah. is we could transition from this to talking about you outside of work, if you're comfortable. Oh with that. yes. Like, so so what yeah, uh, what love to. we we sometimes talk to people about passions like you know music or games or hobbies or uh, uh, some people animals or <clears throat> gardening that sort of thing. Outside work, what 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 carries you? What um, what do you look forward to? What are the passions that you that you like? Um, anything come to mind? So there's two things and they're very interrelated. Mm -hmm. The first is reading. I actually was not a big reader like a year ago, but I got a Kindle and this is not an ad, but I, for the first time I got a Kindle, I remember growing up, I was like, oh, the Kindle's so stupid. Like who would buy this? Like, it's just- I want a physical book. Yeah, I want a physical book or I'll just use my iPhone. Um, I love it. So I've had it for two months. I've read like 15 books. (laughs) Seriously? (laughs) Yeah, seriously. So I went from not reading very often unless it was like, I always thought you were a reader. I don't know why. I always thought you were a reader. I'm obsessed now. So I'm just like off to the races reading like mostly fantasy books. I'm so into the adventure. Um, and I just the quest, the quest story, the Joseph Campbell quest yeah. story, right? Yeah. So the, <laughs> the, by the way, you know about the, the quest narrative? I don't know. So, so the, the, by the way, there's, um, like, I think it's seven, it might be six basic narratives that are used in movies and we oh, intuitively yes. just know them. The hero story. Um, one of them, yeah, the hero story, the hero's journey. And that's why I used to call, remember the attack framework? I used to say that yeah. the, there's a hero's journey that happens in the sock. And it's and they're asymmetric, and the idea is trying to help the defender on the hero's journey. Blah 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 blah. People can go read about it, but the the hero's journey actually has like a very well articulated sequence to it, right. and we recognize when we're in that story. And if you break away from it, uh, it, 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 it there's a jarring, a dissonance. But some of the other ones are like rags to riches. Just, um, yeah. Uh, there's stranger in a strange land, which was a book by Heinlein years ago. There's uh, the tragedy. There's there's like a bunch of these. So so if those are the ones you're into, uh, can we ask what you've read recently? Uh, Fifteen is a lot. Yeah, Maybe, but put a place where I have really something resonated? professional related to come back to on the same topic. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Sorry, I just left on. No, no. Let's, no. I want to hear the books first. I want to hear the books first because this is a, a non sequitur that's sort of tangentially related. So I've been reading this series called Throne of Glass. I don't know if you've heard it of it, but it's um, the I same have, author as the A Court of Thorns and Roses. Oh. I, love it because it's like strong female lead and she is just kicking the crap out of everyone (laughs) so it's been very like it's been very much so a guilty pleasure kind of thing but i have really really enjoyed it and the the story and the adventure is very cool so that's the one most recently i'm also going to get started very soon on uh name of the wind which i think you've read right it's great yeah yeah desperately want him to write the third book as everybody on earth does right now yeah. patrick rothfuss yeah it's a fantastic book people who haven't read it read the first wait which second. one i haven't read it i'll add it to my kindle you right need now. to jacob it, it yeah, yeah. it's very very well done i'm gonna send I'm it to my thrilled. kindle from I'm my really phone i'm really excited to read that one uh what was one the of my name? friends loves it name of the wind it, name, name of the wind yeah of the wind got it 
it's, it's, it's definitely well done. I, and I think if I'm going to get this wrong, but I think Patrick Rothfuss is also on, if it's not critical role, it's one of those D and D live action shows. I could probably look it up in real time in a minute, but uh, before we, before I go do that and Jacob follows his tangent, oh, but before yeah. you do that, one of our colleagues, shout out Eve Wood. Was that where you're going to go, Jacob? No, it wasn't. Eve Wood. Uh, she writes, um, she writes urban uh, oh, fantasy. Cool. So it's super worth looking up. And if memory serves, her first book's called, I might have this wrong, she'll kill me if I do, but it's Blood Rituals. And by the way, those who don't I know I think Eve, that's right. She uh, is a phenomenal forensics person, Ooh. deeply into cyber and tech generally, and very smart. Um, also a big D&D player. She, so I just added her there. Uh, but she's wonderful, and um, we'll probably have her on too one of these days. But Jacob, take it away. You were going to say something while I while I look yeah. Up, so uh, a question on writing professionally and how it has crossover with the hero's journey. So one of the things that I'm trying to get better at in my writing is be more engaging in the style of writing I use and be a little more lean a little more into the creative writing space in technical writing. And this is really something I find really hard to do. One because I'm not trained in any sense. Uh, at all in anything literary in writing like that stuff i just threw right out the window from i don't know probably sixth grade on like i'd be in english class and i just like throw a paper airplane and send me to the office so that's the extent <laughs> of my ability to pay attention in english classes from sixth grade till now so I, i've been trying to learn to do this and like incorporate these things so this is one of the things i got and maybe that maybe these guys will we've called out a lot of brands but um so this this one's kind of expensive but they target like business people so they're just like that ah, they have the money to spend on it um, storyteller tactics. Oh, and so <clears throat> it's ex it's it is expensive, but it's cards, and it has. Um, those I've seen those like advertised. That. I haven't seen them. Like, yeah, you can look through mine before you spend the money on it. For sure, yeah, yeah you'll have but, to bring them next time we get together. Yeah, so there's like uh, the different story methods, though. Like this one, I just picked out, and you can use them and combine them. Like man in the hole story, which mm. I, mean, I can't get that close mm. enough to the camera. Um, and things like that in the hero's journey and it guides you through those and you can use the cards to help structure your story or randomly pull one out and then create your story around it. So I've been using these, but yeah, have you guys found that it's easy to start incorporating or Sam, I think you probably do this well, incorporate a little bit of like creative writing techniques and the hero's journey techniques and whatever man, the whole, whatever it might be, these common literary methodologies for telling a story into technical writing or have you found that you can't do it? You struggled with it? I don't know. I'd love to hear both of your opinions. I have an answer, but I want to hear Allie first. Um, yeah. So uh, I think you do it too. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no. So actually, Sam was one of the people who really helped me see what this would look like done well, because uh, he makes his text very interesting because he adds in a lot of these things. Whereas before, I was kind of like, it was like book reporty, this, 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 and then it's done. Yeah. Because you know? it's right. hard. That's how I feel like I do too, is like I yeah. do. And I don't yeah. want to, I have no desire to write that way, but I do. <laughs> right, exactly. And the thing that really helped me, because um, I now I kind of write very much so, I try to make it as engaging as possible because otherwise people just aren't gonna read it. Like they're just not gonna think it's right. interesting. Um, I interject a lot of commentary midway throughout and a lot of it actually came from my speaking style and from the work that I did public speaking. I worked with a public speaking coach for over a year because I was terrified of public speaking. Sam remembers this. <laughs> like the first time that I got up and good at it. Speaking, good I was at terrible. It. Oh my God. And I knew you would be good at it. By the way. <laughs> Thank you. But a lot of it was 
doing that iteration of basically like I worked with a comedian and an actor on this and he was like, we're going to write a script and then we're going to make the script something that's really punchy and interesting and fun. And if it's not punchy and interesting and fun, then we're going to rewrite, rewrite it until it is. And so that helped a lot too, because it made me think about the the audience much more than what I was right. doing before. And it made me explain what are some complex to- technical topics in a way that a, that an audience would find intriguing and interesting. And from there, it's kind of just, I mean, I can't tell you how many hours I spend just culling my own work and, and killing my darlings, so to speak, as I go through things. Um, but Sam, what do you think? No, writing is rewriting. Um, and this is, I can do one of two things. And I think Ali, you'll, you'll agree because we work together like this. I can either write easily and then take a long time to edit my work or someone can write and pass it to me and I can edit quickly and well and tightly. Like I can't do oh, yeah. both with my own work. I think so I, would, I would write, yeah, I would write something that would take like a thousand words, take me like 20 minutes, half an hour, and then I'd give it to Allie and she'd clean it up. Or you'd give me something and I could really edit it and clean it up. But if it was my own, uh, I, it would take me a day to really, yeah. you know, just get a thousand words right. And, and you know, uh, I had a teacher who used to tell me uh, it's hard to get the words right. And he was referring to why Hemingway took so long with 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 uh, the old man in the sea, right? Why is it so short? Because it started much bigger. It was the whittling down that was so hard. Uh, but Jacob, in my case, it's exactly like Ali in that um, when I speak, uh, I'm much more conscious now than I used to be. And I think of it as like a bardic way. So I don't write it out. As mm-hmm. I speak, I have seen. So you role play a bard on stage, and that's how pretty you much. But no, that's fine. But uh, yes, that's one of my favorite characters, even when it was a stupid one. But the older editions. But my, um, but I think in terms of snippets, like anecdotes, and those anecdotes improve every time I see it and get feedback from a crowd. Ah, oh, yes, so, I have. So seen when I write out an outline, yeah. uh, I usually literally write a word or two to trigger those, and then I just have to remember that list. It's how people used to remember epic poetry, and uh, you know, um, and sometimes the rhyming schemes would help with truly long poems, you know. Uh, so, so in my case, when I get up on stage, I'm I have it, it's almost modules that I'm bringing to it, and um, we, I did this deep conference years ago, and I, I had this next gen CISO presentation that I gave, and I had a coach come in, Ali, kind of like what you went through, and he said it's good, it's good, but it could be it could be great. And he gave me, he said, the way you're telling this is a series of things. You should instead talk about it as a, as a, as a stranger in a strange lands, which is where that one came from story. He said, yep. tell it, tell it as you've arrived as a CISO and it's a strange place to be. Don't tell it as a series of things that you're going to teach. Kind of like what you were saying about your writing. Like, oh, as a CISO, you should do this and you should do this and you should do this. And you should. Don't. Instead, tell it as a narrative as you've arrived. You don't feel like you belong. And here's what you have kind of learned and how you came to feel comfortable. And that presentation went from being next generation CISO to how not to lose your job in 13 months. And it was because the average CISO lasted 13 months in his or her job. And so to answer your question, I do it more in speaking, but when I write, uh, unless I'm doing the full process as I'm writing, I write what I think people, what I would want to read. Right. So. I wake up on, I have to relax and then the creativity flows. So usually I wake up on a Saturday or a Sunday morning, having thought about something, I go, oh, I should write about that. And I have no pressure. I don't have a deadline. And mm-hmm. the ideas are there and boom, 30 minutes later, I've got a blog. And then 
I'm at Zscaler now, so what I do is I fire it off to these absolute angels, uh, uh, Kyle and, and Chris, uh, and I say, guys, I got another one for this week, and then they will literally. They, they, that's exactly how I operate. Too. Like, what, like, how I wake up one morning and I'm like, I'm writing a blog this morning because I <laughs> something on LinkedIn pissed me off. It's typically <laughs> like, how I start. Like, they're like typo, 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 killer word, killer word, killer word, and then that gets published during the week. But it's it it's because I've been thinking. So I was thinking, um, deception technology sounds awfully mm. boring, right? Like boring, boring, like deception, decoy, lure, deception, deception. So I thought about it. Well, we talk about zero trust. This is really negative trust. This is about having attackers be afraid to move in a network. That's more interesting, right? So I wrote this up with an anecdote and 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 parallels and, and ways of thinking and published it. That but that idea wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had the chance to relax on like a Saturday morning. Not that CISOs yeah. are I'm so, so, so glad you brought up Zero Trust because it's written into my contract that I have to bring it up at least once a conversation. So. Oh, you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I'm no, I'm uh, by the way, I was a skeptic of Zero Trust, by the way, so I'm happy to talk about it. But, what do you mean? Uh, oh, no, we don't actually have to talk about it. <laughs> I just like, XDR, you were skeptic. XDR is the other one that everyone has to mm. you, you actually have to, I think. Is it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't have a choice. Yeah. Um, when you say you're a skeptic, were you a skeptic of the ideology of Zero Trust or the well, productization? So I'll, I'll give you the, the, the short version. There's two parts to it, right? So the first is, I was a skeptic that you ever have zero. Oh, you can't. I think it's impossible, in my opinion. Yeah. Right? But, and so my logic was, well, you, in order to do it correctly, you'd need minimum, minimum uh, provisioning and, and access policy that is provisioned on demand, that is continuously enforced and then deprovisioned, and you'd have to create a mechanism for that that itself is, has an attack layer and requires trust, right? So your attack topography would increase. And I realized that that's, it, zero trust doesn't mean zero trust. It's actually approaching zero. It is a least trust, just like a least privilege, just like a least access, et cetera. Right. All, we have a whole bunch of leasts as principles. And then what I met, realized it meant was zero trust in the connective medium. And the best way to summarize it is, for me, it is... It is the only, and the word only is critical, only allowing the access that's needed by the business when it's needed for as long as it's needed. And that world's much more interesting, right? In a world where where if you do it correctly, you actually remove all of the visibility of your attack surface. And you actually are not worried about what all of IT has been worried about for as long as there's been an internet, which is how do you get to the network? It's not about that. It's not about layer one through four connectivity. You assume it's there and don't trust it. It's about right. it's about really layer seven connectivity. Yeah. And and how do you do that super efficiently, transparently, and just in time, and strongly? And then then you can add benefits in the middle. Now that's interesting. And I've said I, too much. Full disclosure: I work for Zscaler. No, which is a zero trust. <laughs> but Ellie, I, you're the analyst. I want to hear you. Yeah. yeah. So, Ellie, which products do I buy to make my zero trust go? <laughs> no, but zero. I love that you said that because um, one of the things that so we just released a report on uh, the secrets to successful zero trust deployments, which is something mm. that um, me, Jeff Pollard, and Carlos Rivera, two other analysts on the team, started a while awesome ago. Too. What? They're awesome too. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So, so yeah, great. Yeah, sorry. Um, and. It was really interesting because we did a lot of interviews with end users who had actually had successful zero trust implementations as part of this. And that was kind of our thing was like, does this exist in the real world? And if it does, can we actually show some of the learnings from that? And the, one of the first headers in the report is stop thinking of the network as something worth protecting. And mm -hmm. that was like, 
first off. I love that mentality. Yeah, it was so great um, to think about that. Obviously, there's a ton of value that you can get from network security tools. Um, There's a ton of things you can detect that you couldn't detect if they were on the endpoint or what have you. But most of the feedback was, if you're going to start on zero trust, start at the users, start at the identity, because that's the most visible. That's the most... um, the, the place where you can get the most buy-in. If you're focused on micro-segmentation, first off, you're going to be there for a while, <laughs> years and years and years. And second, um, you're not going to get the visibility. Like Once that's implemented, you're not going to be able to show the business, show other parts of the business what succeeded. Whereas if you're focused on securing the identities and the users, you can show that value immediately. You can show it with the reduction in friction, with better employee experience, all of that. So it was really, really interesting to to get that feedback from so many who had started down this path. Um, and so I, I 100% agree. I think it's it's just, you're never gonna be done with zero trust, but there's a lot that you can do to make things better incrementally. And it's just continuing to do it. That's most important. I like the ideas throwing out network security. I've never seen a network. People There's are- a reason for it, by the way. There's a reason yeah. why we did this. It's, it's, it's Metcalf's law. Right, it, it's that the value. It's right baked in. The value of a network is it increases faster or exponentially with a linear increase in the size of the network. You can picture that diagram of like how many nodes there are and the and the edges. Right. And the more edges there are, the more value and it increases. The edges increase faster than the number of nodes. You picture that. You can actually Google it on the side, and you'll see. So, so what we're we trying to do? We're trying to make faster networks with more connectivity, more points connecting to each other. And what does IT do? They're, 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 they get their MBOs on the basis of five uptime, nines. Uptime, uptime, uptime. Yeah. Uptime, uptime, and less, and, and easier troubleshooting, faster root cause analysis. Uh, so tickets are open less and less tickets, which means maximize connectivity at all cost, literally cost. And so we have been, and what do you do? Hi, I have a problem with my computer. Did you reboot? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. So now. Can, can I, can I cut in again the IT crowd here? Hello, IT. Yeah, have you tried turning it off and on again? Hello, IT. <laughs> uh, something's wrong with my computer. Have you tried turning it off and on again? <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but, 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 so, so, of course, when you're laser focused on that, is the problem. That's what you do, and you build highly complex unnecessarily so. So if instead you have simple uplinks, and then you do the secure service edge, and you make decisions close to that point, you can actually start doing optimal pathways. You can really focus on user, app, and just say, hey, all below us can be sewage as long as it's there. Hmm. Sorry, I shouldn't say sewage. That's well, at, least <laughs> Why? I, at least I didn't swear. Is what I'm gonna say. So yeah, great. We're gonna have someone in the comments now. All did he say? All network admins are sewage. No, <laughs> Sam, it's not. Sam Curry it's said. Not. <laughs> Some of my best friends are network admins. I'm sorry. I shouldn't. I gotta stop saying that phrase. That's terrible. Like anyway. Yeah. What sewage? No. No, network if you admins. Catch it, you can catch it when you re, when you read this. Yeah, when I'm editing later. Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to change Allie. the sub. I want to change the subject back for the last 15 minutes because we only got the books on things you do. You know. I know you snowboard. I know you've traveled a lot. I think there's there's a lot of ways. Oh to yeah, you, decompress you were, you're from big work. into travel. Are you still big into travel, even post COVID or more so post COVID? Oh yeah, what happened during COVID for your? Because tr- you traveled, but that was your thing. I remember at Cyber Reason to really decompress was travel, and then yeah, yeah, the world took it away from you. I know it was terrible, and it actually took me a while to get back. It's into not it, terrible. That was great. To not Cyber travel. Reason? 
Oh, no, no, to travel. Sorry. I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. How are you saying Sam's I like, I loved sitting in the house for two years. Straight. Yeah, I love just sitting around not being Travel in your mind. No. Yeah. No, um, I, but I've finally gotten back into it. I went to Asia for the first time two months ago and loved Where'd it. Where'd you go? Yeah, I which, went to Tokyo, part? Hong Kong, and Thailand, and it was- All in one trip? Um, wow. All in one trip. Oh, oh, by the way, totally don't, I totally don't get a commission for this at all. So my daughter- who's 10, uh, she really is into other cultures and she's trying to teach herself German and stuff. So, well, yeah, she, we were standing by the bus stop and waiting to get on the bus. She goes, Daddy, tell me about other languages. And I'm running through them. She goes, I think I like the sound of German. Then I find out she's teaching herself German. But anyway, she, Scarlett is awesome. So shout out to Scarlett. Uh, so we decided to go with this thing called Sakura Co. Have you heard about Sakura? No. It's, oh. a, it's a Japanese yeah, company. Yeah, yeah. And I think I've told you about this, Jacob. They do uh, uh, a Japanese tasting box every month, and they. You've send mentioned you it about on two podcasts. They're going to have to start paying us. <laughs> yeah, they should pay us for this. But uh, I love that. But, so I think I, I think it works out to it's like three hundred and something dollars for the year in shipping. Oh, easy. But, but they send you like like twenty things a month with a theme. Wow. One was like beaches in Okinawa, you know, and it's oh. like one was like taste of Tokyo. That's what made me think of. So you open it up, and it's like some of them are really cool some of the really crazy flavors and you get like tea and it's it's cool sorry but you went, to, you went to japan yeah yeah let me guess in that box taste in tokyo there were no fruits no fruits no but there were fruit <laughs> right there was fruit infused like there were gummies and there was okay one was like grape gum that you could whistle if you put it in your lips you could blow it you whistle and there mm-hmm. was um what were some of the uh trying to think uh, there was a lot of like there was some shrimp chips, I think, and yeah. there was oh, some I love shrimp chips. Like, that's, love like, that's inescapable. Um, but they had uh, some really interesting textures and flavors and cakes and things. So, highly recommend it. She waits. She's like, "Is it here yet? Has it shipped?" Oh, that's so cute. That's so, really you nice. can't go there. But back to you. So you went. You went to Japan. Basically. Yeah. So I went to. Tokyo. How long were you there for? I was only there for three or four days before going to Hong Kong for three days and then um, Thailand for, for most of the time, rest of the time. And uh, yeah, so got to explore a good amount of Tokyo, a good amount of Hong Kong, but not uh, not nearly enough of Japan as a whole. Like I definitely want to go back and-, and Oh, different that. parts are very different too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I loved it. I mean, like I mentioned, there was no fruit <laughs> in Tokyo that I could find. It was just all fish and rice, but it was delicious. <laughs> um, and then my one of my favorite parts was kite surfing in Thailand was just oh, oh that sounds really cool. So do, do you get to travel much for work as a oh. as an analyst? I mean, you you have to go see customers, but do, and do you get a chance to see anything when you do that? Because I certainly I haven't done the analyst thing, but for me it was always I, like go to the hotel, go to the customer, get on a plane, go to the hotel. I is, found is the it first. Like that? When I started traveling for work, sorry, Ali, <laughs> just totally jammed myself in there for a second. When I first started traveling for work, uh, I really liked to try to explore a thing. And then by, I don't know, week three of traveling for work, I was like, I am going to the hotel. Oh, yeah. I'm ordering tired. room service. I don't want to see anything. I want to hide. So, Ali, exactly. are you, yeah, no, you're I mean, the same. It, there are some things where I'm like, all right, I'm in a new place. I want to explore a little bit, so I'll take half a day or something like that. But for the most part, it's when can I get home <laughs> or into my hotel room and not see another human. <laughs> it's been a lot back to back. I traveled last week for Black Hat. I'm traveling next week, the week after, like the week mm-hmm. after that as well. So I'm just kind of at the point where I'm like, my, oh. my, my wife, when we took one of our first you know airplane trips when we got married, 
I said, where do you want to go? She said, Vegas. I said, why would you go there? No. Right? Because because every time I had been to Vegas was at least yeah. twice a year. Always a convention. Always shut myself in my room and hide. And I had a great time. We did a, a helicopter oh. tour of the Grand Canyon. Oh, we went cool, to though. a show. I was like, oh, yeah, they have shows here. I forgot about that. You know? What kind of show did you go to in Vegas, Sam? Uh, we went and saw <laughs> o. We went to, oh. We also went and saw like, a slightly risque one. It was like... Um, <laughs> Oh, it was, a, it was the Cirque du Soleil one that's like uh, a little racy, which I'm forgetting the name of. Right now. She'd be mortified, but she doesn't listen to my podcast. So, you know, she's like, yeah, Cyber stuff. Like, whatever. <laughs> Actually, she might listen to this one. She'd be like, oh, Allie's on? I'll listen. Like, you know. um, yeah. So you have to be careful what you say. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I think she'll get bored because she doesn't listen to things for 50 odd minutes. She'll probably won't get to this part and realize. Oh, speaking of, we're at 50 odd minutes. Allie, what do we miss? What do we. This is eight minutes for you to use this platform for whatever you want. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, wow, that's a... I guess we should have done it earlier, like instead of last billing here. Yeah. Um, I think that the... I'll come back to some work stuff. The thing that I'm most excited about right now and the thing that I'm doing the most work around is uh, security operations as a function and what that means from a, a detection engineering perspective. I think that... Like some of the most successful socks that I've seen use a combination of agile, uh, what I call the detection response development lifecycle, which is basically taking the software development lifecycle and applying it to detection and response mm. engineering. And then uh, detection as code. Not all of those are possible for every team, obviously, but even moving towards agile is such a monumental step to getting some of the the higher quality detections that we're looking for and also to be able to iterate on those detections. So I am, I can geek out on security operations stuff for hours. Um, but that's what I would definitely want to highlight. I'd love to hear on the detection as code in that I agree with the methodology and what I've read about it from you and others. And I'm interested, how do you push that down market? So you, you mostly focus, you said on the fortune 500, um, yeah. How do small and medium businesses take advantage of something that typically takes more human resources? Great question. And this is actually funny because it's something that I've seen even at some of these incredibly large companies do because they're like, we don't actually want to do detection as code. We don't actually even want to build these detections in-house. So what they do is they will just follow an agile methodology, but instead of actually building the detections or having a CICD pipeline for the detection as code and for the detection quality, They'll just say, hey, vendor, you're going to build these detections. We've seen that we need this tuned. We need these new detections to be built. So we have a service provider that we just offload that to, whether it's your MDR provider or your MSSP. So there's, and, and some of my research that's coming up is going to be on that, uh, those different levels of what you can do to get to this point of more of a detection engineering and engineering function within the SOC. And it's important to either have that idea of like, you don't have to do the detections, you don't have to do a detection response development lifecycle, you can pass that off to a vendor, or they'll like, if we're getting down market, they're just outsourcing all of it. They're not actually doing any of that work themselves, um, which is cool too. So yeah, does that answer your question? Yes. Oh, oh look, we've got the puppy. Yeah. She decided she decided she wanted to come on Aww. podcast today. She usually doesn't. She's usually sleeping. But. I had a question for Allie, and it went out of my head as soon as I saw the puppy. But I know. Actually, <laughs> it's sorry. back. But but uh, aw. Uh, so All right, hold Allie, on. I let's do have her, a question for you. Let's get her in the camera fully. We can put her in the thumbnail for the yeah. video. Yeah, you got it. You got it. Oh. Oh. Hi. Hello. It looks like she's about to say something. It does. Yeah. 
there'll be a lick on the microphone. That probably will sound shy? weird. Oh, she's like, what are these people doing? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so Allie, my question is, um, uh, would we be remiss if the if the letters A and I didn't appear somehow? So yeah. um, oh, here he goes. There's, there's a bunch of startups. We made it a long time. I'm proud of the, us. The word, the word copilot has appeared all over the place, and not just with uh, with Microsoft, but all over the place for like guided response and projection and and recommendations and you know how to avoid overlearning and all the rest. But Yonatan, a, a colleague of ours years ago, wanted a SecOps revolution like the DevOps revolution. And, and I always thought it was a bit much to ask your average SOC analyst to also become a rapid coder. Um, are you seeing either hype or real use of things like LLMs as a tool to cut down uh, the need to spend time as a scripter and developer and to get more iterative and creative and faster? Or is it, is it, is it hype? Are you seeing betas? Is it in use? Is that happening to get the detectionist code kickstarted? From a technology perspective, I am seeing this happen. This is is more than hype. Um, it is beta, but or before even pre-beta. Um, I actually completely agree with Yonatan. I think that that's the model that we need to move to. I don't think that the coding... well, we just agreed on when, by the way. Not yeah. Really. No. No. Absolutely. I, I don't think the coding requirements are that stringent that it would be impossible for an analyst to get to. And I think it's actually really great for their careers and their development and improving the analyst experience, which is something that I talk about quite often. Um, the the thing that I'm most worried about is I don't love the idea of giving a bunch of people access to build any type of code, um, including detections, without them actually understanding the principles that go into it or the language mm. that goes into it or what a unit test is. Mm. Um, I get very nervous about that type of thing. So we I, have a I, term I, for that. It's leaky abstraction. Exactly. Yeah. And so the thing, as, as excited as I am about the potential, I'm also just very wary of making any recommendation for a team to just unleash themselves on uh, Gen AI through whatever implementation to start doing, start writing code without understanding the principles behind what they're building. Because I mean, yeah, I, take I, one. I used to, when I was a developer, I would look back at the code I'd written six months ago and be like, I have no idea what this does. As long as I commented, I would, but you know, it, it even with your own code, it can be difficult to remember sometimes what you've written, let alone code written by a machine. Well, I, I think, I think LLMs have to go a lot further than say chat GPT because uh, first of all, uh, the, it, it starts to, these LLMs in general start to develop and feed us back what we reward it with, which tends to get us into ruts. Uh, mm -hmm. They're also subject to poisoning um, mm -hmm. very often, right? Um, they, we already see that with malware for many, many years, that injection of certain types of malware will bias machine learning. That's been happening for over, over 15 years. I would argue, though, with a system like how ChatGPT is implemented, poisoning is very challenging. Yeah, and I want to be careful. It's We're possible. not just criticizing OpenAI, right? Just Right, right. But in general, you can poison LLM, but it depends on how it's configured and how it's built. I think things like ChatGPT do a relatively okay job. Once you get I say relatively okay. Models, it'll be easier. I don't, I don't know if you guys remember this, but David Berliner, another colleague of ours, and yeah. I did something called Mirror Chess years ago about why yes. automation was a bad strategy in cyber and that you have to... Um, because it, because it becomes predictable and can be exploited. Right. And so you have to do, uh, another term was from submarine warfare was do a crazy Ivan. You have to check it from red October is where I got it, but it is a term. You have to check 
in case you're being followed because you've become too predictable. But I'm worried that exactly for what you said, Ali, we'll get less creativity in the sock and it'll become more predictable and the bad guys and gals will hide mm. therefore in the baffles in the wake of mm. of what we're doing and they'll hide in the darker spots in the noise it becomes so commoditized that it, it's easy to avoid detection yeah. yeah yeah well thank you for answering that by the way because uh because you're talking to you're talking to more i mean i i'm i'm a customer of one and i i, I talk to uh peer CISOs, but you're talking to them and seeing they're probably asking you questions about should they be doing these this research and which companies to work with. So that's, I, that's and I hear the hype and I and I see some of the startups, but it's like, are they really getting deployments? Yeah, I think that might be a good place, Ellie, to to leave the podcast. Is if who should and how should people be looking to adopt any AI or LLM? What what are the people who should be adopting it? Who shouldn't? I think people would like to maybe hear that. Yeah. Uh, do you mean from a security tools perspective? From Certainly a in the context of your research, yeah. Yeah, from whatever whatever comes to your mind, I think. Because right. I think it's too big to summarize. In two yeah, big. right, exactly, yeah, within yeah. the scope of your, totally. your security research. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a couple of different factors. First, from a business perspective, um, don't outright block it. We're seeing a lot of companies outright block Gen AI I think that's tools. the dumbest thing. It's and- a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. Um, I, I'm surprised people are doing it, to be honest, because I just don't understand why they think that's going to be that's going to work. Yeah, it's like um, blocking the cloud or, or Google. Yeah, it's or, one of or web search. I should say uh, search engines back in the day. It's like mm, one of Hamilton's seven business powers, or is um, you can have power right in business. The idea of like how you own a market, and so one of them though is uh, companies lose markets because they're afraid to innovate because they think it bastardizes their existing business model. And I think that's the case, right, that you're speaking to. These companies are locking down LLMs because they're afraid of how it impacts their business model, which means other companies are just going to steamroll you. Or privacy or IP loss or right. uh, what's ours is ours and now we don't What know. is IP, though? <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Chinese Communist Party. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a joke. I also have to get that. That's for the AI that ranks our podcast after. Oh yeah, what mistake have I just made? <laughs> Please continue. We, we we keep we keep interrupting you. I'm so no, sorry. it's okay. Um, but yeah, I focus on on data policies as opposed to generative AI policies. That I think is very important as well. You're going to have to have a generative AI policy because legal is probably going to make you. But at the end of the day, making this as simple as possible for the employees that are going to have to meet and. Uh, follow these policies, that is what's going to be most important if you want compliance. Uh, from the standpoint of buying technology with with generative AI, keep in mind that it is not going to be this year. Uh, there are betas happening now. There are very private previews happening now with around 20 to 30 customers um, at a maximum. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Obviously, just they want to control the environment, but also it's real expensive right now to use generative AI. And until that cost come down, comes down or they find ways to manage those costs, it's going to be challenging to get many customers or at least to a generally available version of a product. And I wouldn't expect that until next year. Um, from a security operations standpoint, I think the most interesting use case is around reporting and around generating reports. There's nothing more annoying for an mm, GRC stuff. Yeah, or a threat hunter than having to write up a report about an incident. And so use it to your advantage to save a bunch of time there. Um, and then obviously there's some fun novel use cases around like 
is this vulnerability in my environment or what's the application I need to worry the most about? But in reality, especially in Fortune 500, a lot of enterprise processes are going to get in the way of that being particularly impactful or useful and is more of just like a flashy cool feature. So keep that in mind as well. If they don't have zero trust, it's all moved anyway because they move laterally. Exactly. But, um, <laughs> exactly. I'm cutting that part. By, by the way, I've been, I've, been advising, the mail. <laughs> I have been advising, um, I had a chance to advise some uh, regulators in developing countries and I've advised some peers. Don't forget certified ethical use in red teaming because people have been banning that. And then if you do that, you don't get as much rapidity or speed and you don't get as much diversity in your simulated attacks and your blue team suffers. So it, it, don't just ban it and use for attack, put guidelines around how to use it. I don't know yes. if that's, that's come up for you as well. 1000% totally agree. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to call it an episode. Hopefully that advice is useful. And Allie, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And it's so, so good so to see you again. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was yeah. great to see you both.